0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 47th edition of Databytes, getting things done with data in government. I'm Gavin Fregard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you this evening, here at the IFG and online. Tonight's event is brought to you by Strepsils. They're not sponsoring, it's just it wouldn't be happening without them.
1: <laughs>
0: Let's start in the usual way. Hands up if you've been to Databytes before. Welcome back. Hands up if this is your first Databytes. Welcome. We've got four more brilliant speakers for you for data discussions that will be insightful, intelligent, informative, and at times intense. Though obviously not like that. <laughs> Coming to Databytes is always the right lifestyle choice. Let's start with some housekeeping. Tonight's event is on the record and we are being live streamed, obviously. On social media, it's hashtag IFGdatabytes and we are live tweeting still from at IFGEvents. And to put your questions to our speakers, use the Slido page, you're almost certainly already on. If you're not, go to bit.ly slash SlidoDB47, capital S, capital DB. If you're here at the IFG, you can of course raise your hand as well. Why does the IFG organise data bytes? Well, we aim to bring together the various different data communities in and around government, show everyone what better data can achieve in practice, and put interesting data projects on the record so we can all learn from them. How does data bytes work? You're going to see four presentations about data this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a data byte. The presenter will then face questions for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. And then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. This is our 47th data bytes. You can watch the previous 46 on the IFG website. So, what's happened since we last met? Well, long standing fans of Databytes, and I'm told you do exist, will remember when every single event started with a recap of that month's ministerial resignations. <laughs> Hello, old friend. <laughs> Today, though, we start with Labour frontbench resignations after Shadow Minister Imran Hussein became the first to quit over Gaza. Now, since Keir Starmer became leader, there have been a couple of sackings outside reshuffles. Sam Tarry and Rebecca Long-Bailey with or without hyphen. Others stepped down for personal reasons to focus on their constituencies or over various controversies, but there have been some resignations over policy disagreements. I'm not sure I've ever used the word bourgeoisie on a chart before. (laughs) Both the Covert Human Intelligence Sources Bill and EU Future Relationship Bill prompted two resignations apiece. We'll see if the number increases over Gaza in the coming days. <clears throat> Altogether that's just under 30 non-reshuffle departures from the Labour front bench since Keir Starmer became leader considerably fewer than from the government front bench fewer even than a single week the one commencing 4th of July 2022 Rather than resignations, repeated charts recently have been about by-elections. The day after our last data bites, Labour won Mid-Bedfordshire and Tamworth from the Tories. That makes it ten seats changing hands this Parliament, a post-1979 record, and eight government defeats, equaling the record from 92 to 97. Both joined an elite group of by-elections with a swing of 20% or more. Eight of the 36 since 1960 have come this Parliament. And there's now a recall petition in Wellingborough. Just under 8,000 signatures will trigger another by-election. Another recent theme has been MPs changing allegiance through defections and suspensions. There've been three more since we last met, but the biggest switch this month came north of the border where former SNP leadership contender, Ash Regan MSP joined the Alba party. That prompted me to look at how the UK Parliament, Scottish Parliament and Welsh Senedd compare using a very crude calculation of changes of allegiance per seat number in the legislature. So if we look at the UK House of Commons, we can see the Brexit years stand out with Change UK, Tory Brexit suspensions and more disciplinary actions than before. The Scottish Parliament, maybe a few more around the independence referendum and Brexit. The Senedd, nothing hugely exciting until we get to 2016 to 21. It does rather stand out, largely because in the wake of Brexit, UKIP members voted to leave as many other existing unions as they possibly could. Now, it's been a busy few weeks for the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, with the AI Summit, culminating in his conversation with Elon Musk, a billionaire with some controversial views, responsible for crucial parts of our political infrastructure, whose reputation has taken a battering over the last 12 months. He clearly enjoyed interviewing Elon. Now, the government hoped the AI Summit would show the UK to be at the leading edge, a modern nation embracing frontier technology. And then we had the King's Speech. Now that included a bill on autonomous vehicles you can see one of those top left. (laughs) All of that helped mark Sunak's first year as Prime Minister. He's currently the 49th longest serving PM out of 57 This is where he'd end up if he lost the next election, depending on when it's called. Uh, We're using some likely dates from a recent IFG explainer. So a January 2025 loss would leave him 40th out of 57, just behind Henry Campbell Bannerman, the assassinated Spencer Percival, and Gordon Brown. So how has the PM's popularity fared? Well, asked a year ago, 25% of people thought he could be a good or even great prime minister. Less so now. His personal reputation has gone backwards. (laughs) Some drops of 40 percentage points or more on decisiveness, competence, and strength. His handling of political issues, same. The biggest drop there was on managing the economy. But actually, satisfaction ratings for most prime ministers take a hit over their first year. Only Blair and Boris Johnson improved. And these days, even making it to one year is an achievement. (laughs) Still, one could have had a worse year. Actually, hang on. There we are. (laughs) Even Liz Truss didn't wipe away that much value. Um, Elon Musk there proving the adage that the quickest way to make a small fortune out of social media is to start with a large one. Turning to tonight. Our first speaker joining us virtually will be Philip Davis, Deputy Director at of the Office for National Statistics on Business Data Collection, Digital by Default and a Future Vision. We'll be back in the room for Gordon Guthrie, Research Fellow at the Scottish Government on Constitutional Oversight of Data as the Foundation for Digital Transformation. Then we'll hear from Sean Thomas, Chief Data Officer at the Department for Business and Trade on Agile Governance of Large Language Models. And last, but definitely not least, we have Adam Locker, the head of data architecture and engineering at National Highways on getting data things done. We'll hopefully be back on the 6th of December for the final Data of the year. As ever, we need sponsors to keep Data going. Drop Ritesh a line if you might be interested in that and Strepsils if you are watching, please do get in touch. We'd love some free samples. And as ever, if you want to speak or know somebody that should, please get in touch with me. That's more than enough from me. We are now going to go virtually to our first speaker of the evening, and that is Philip.
1: Good Good evening, everybody. I hope you can hear me. Um, Thank you, first of all, for for inviting me along this evening. Um, Apologies I'm not with you in the room. Um, It was a bit last minute, so I've uh, not been able to make travel plans in time. But... um, um, so, my name is Philip Davis. I'm the Deputy Director at the Office for National Statistics covering uh, surveys and registers transformation, but with a business focus. Um, tonight, hopefully, if I can move my slide on, I'm going to cover eight minutes to cover uh, four things, hopefully. Um, as a statistician, I'm um, to give you some basic statistics um, talk about our digital collection and what we're doing with our surveys talk about our business register briefly and our transformation plans for that and then maybe talk a little bit about uh, another project we've we're looking at which is maybe a different future for how we collect um, our business survey data so first things first just some basic stats so the ONS. Currently has around seventy-seven active business surveys. Uh, they they have sort of different periodicities from annual, quarterly, monthly, and the what was the the, the coronavirus uh, survey goes out fortnightly. Broadly, ten economic themes. Um, the questionnaires translate into around two and a half million. Sorry, the survey translate into around two and a half million questionnaires questionnaires a year. Um, around a million of that actually is the is the what is the the, the big survey as we call it. Um, just over 2 million of those are now online. Uh, we grow to around 400,000 businesses or enterprises uh, in, in a typical year. Um, and we have around 3 million businesses on our register, which I'll talk about a bit later. Um, and as you'd expect, the business surveys underpin our economic stats. So from our national accounts uh, to sector accounts through to um, our investment and pensions information, prices, inflation, et cetera, uh, all a, a lot of the data comes through our, our surveys. Um, that we collect on the business side. So digital by default, what do I mean by that? So typically our questionnaires were, were paper-based. So until relatively recently, uh, most of the questionnaires we we send out were sent out on paper. There's been a, uh, something called the Moving Service Online Project, um, I guess closing the name. Um, and we've been progressing our surveys from paper onto, onto digital collection format. And to do that, we've been developing our electronic questionnaire capability. Um, Currently, as I say, we have around 2.1 million of those 2.5 questionnaires, million questionnaires online. Um, and I think what's really key here is that the the move is really about trying to help sort of improve the the experience for the the business. Uh, our business surveys typically, apart from the the big survey, actually typically are mandatory. So b- businesses, if you're sampled, there's an obligation for you legally to fill those and complete uh, the surveys on behalf of the ONS. Um, but that capability is really what allowed us to move into um, um, sort of a, a different mode uh, when the coronavirus came along. It allowed us to collect to still collect data for lots of businesses that weren't maybe operating from their usual sites. Um, but it also allowed us to stand up the you know the the COVID survey as well. So a huge um, sort of transformation piece of work that's allowed us to, to move quickly and adapt. Um, still work to do. There's always continuous development. We are still moving some of the remaining surveys online. Um, and as as we do that, we will also go back and look at the existing surveys and try and to improve that functionality and that experience for for our, our respondents. Key for all this, though, is really about the data quality. It's about trying to get the best data we can. An easiest possible way to improve um, our underlying statistics. So we also have something called the Business Register. So for those of you that, that maybe have not heard of, of what that is, it's it's basically a register that we collect um, data from Companies House, like HMRC and some other survey data um, t- to provide a register for our UK businesses. And, and it's that register that we then use to sample our surveys. So um, we collect information. It's updated almost on a daily basis. So we get regular feeds from from those other government departments. Um, and we use that then to provide a sample. And then we depending on the the industrial classification code uh, and what the sample is trying to collect, we will then go out to obviously a a subsample of the, the register to to gather information. Um, as I say it underpins you know the majority of our economic statistics. Um, and it's also used by other government departments. So it's not just the ONS that benefits from that, other government and research facilities, particularly the Secure Research Service within the ONS uh, kind of access to that data. It um, has to be anonymized and are certain obviously really critical rules and regulations about how it's shared. Um, data privacy is paramount, um, but there are ways and means of, of doing that if you're in another government department. We are trying to transform that, so that we're trying to move it off um, legacy uh, software. At the moment, it's it's current sort of tech has been around for 25 or 30 odd years, um, makes it a bit more difficult to to update as we need to, and it also limits our ability to change and and adapt as as quickly as we'd like. Um, We are moving to a cloud-based solution, um, and that will allow us to have greater capability um, and also greater functionality, but also maintain a much more sustainable piece of work. Actually, this afternoon, we, we, we've we established a, a government forum um, where we bring together users and other interested parties um, and discuss what the, the benefits might be and how we might develop that going forward, making sure that, we, again, we understand user needs uh, and make sure we keep people sort of involved and, and have a uh, an insight to what we're doing sort of from the very start. So, and, and that's it. We had uh, the latest uh, uh, meeting of that this afternoon. So, you know, good progress being made. The plan is to try and deliver that by the end of, of next year. Um, as usual, you know, optimism bias always creeps in. Um, but we're making great progress, you know, working with some external partners to help us deliver that tech as well. So um, you know, it's the furthest we've been in this transformation of, the, of that key legacy piece of, of software within the, the ONS. And again, the benefits, well, a couple of things it will allow us to do. Um, it allows us to attach more variables to businesses. So often when we sample some of our key sampling variables are tend to be turnover and employment number. Um, that's great for most of the businesses, but some of them, particularly in the financial sector, um, other variables might be, might be more appropriate. Um, so what we're looking to do is, is try and um, be able to add more data into those companies so we can use different variables where that's, where that's suitable. Um, it'll also allow us uh, via some of the data sources to expand the population. And we have the, the large numbers, uh, generally, we get from um, pay and, and, and uh, VAT from the HMRC feeds and some of our own surveys to, to look at structure. Um, but with the the technology of the SBR and some other information, we, we'll hopefully get our hands on, we'll be able to expand that population for the very small businesses, particularly salt practitioners, et cetera, that will expand that population from around that 3 million mark I, I mentioned earlier to around 5, 5.5 million, so a much more um, um, fuller uh, population. Um, again, in terms of, of analysis, it'll allow us to, to to better analyze some of the data and maybe other government departments, um, much more of a, a, a sort of a, um, analytical capability um, that allow us to, to look at changes over time, um, rather than trying to take screenshots and, and and sort of snapshots of what we have. And again, for... Internally, it'll allow us to to be far more sustainable. We'll be able to change it far more easily. Um, It'll be far more cost effective and efficient. And I think for those using the system also, it'll be a a much better experience, which will hopefully, again, sort of improve our um, our ability to, to use it and benefit from it. So just lastly, sort of a future. So you know, as I say, we, we are looking to do a lot of work. We've transformed. We're looking to move most of us into that into digital space. We've got the upgrades to the to the register, but also, what does that future look like for for business service collection? You know, how do we try and reduce the burden on our respondents? Hopefully, reduce the number of surveys we have. Also, so we, we've got three key pillars that uh, we're looking at at the moment, and this is an evolving project. Um, so starting to sort of think about how we might do that, and we're looking at maybe a, a far more modular design and. A, no other, other government departments um, across the the globe are looking at a similar approach. Um, a new engagement model with our respondents, so you know, really putting them at the heart of what we do. Uh, even though they are mandatory, trying to make their life as easy as possible. You know, reduce the burden on how they they send in their data, um, but also then technology to enable them both to to do it in a way that suits the business but also move much more towards automation longer-term potentially. And how we do that, we might move to that that theme, as I say, in terms of thinking of the the core themes that we talked about. Um, But broadly, this is really about making it easier for our respondent, improving the data quality, which is key, making it far more efficient for everyone involved, and that's both us as the the ONS, but also for users. Um, Increasing our capability within our staff too, so giving staff a much broader um, experience, engaging with the, the customers, across a range of surveys not survey by surveys they mostly do now but also making that sustainability i think this is a longer term project to be able to move on to new tech um, and give us the ability to really reflect and change as, as the economy changes and, and as user needs change and government uh, government's ask of us changes we're able to respond much more quickly um, and deliver that so that's again probably the re, one of the most exciting things we're doing um taking that piece of record so hopefully i'll be able to come back maybe another time and tell you a bit more about that as it, as it evolves
0: and i'll stop there thank you very much phil now uh, while we uh while we get phil on screen that was incredibly quick um, just a reminder to everybody watching us online you can put your questions uh via me uh via slido and if you're not already there it's bit.ly slash slido db47 If you're here in the room, please do keep your questions short because we are up against the clock. Wait for the mic to arrive and do tell us who you are and where you're from if you can. But remember, we are on the record. Uh, I will come to the room for the first question and we have one down here.
2: Thanks, Uh, Paul Atherton, I'm a social campaigner with the Royal Society of Arts. Um, What I'd like to ask, Phil, is have you examined the impact of going digital by default on small businesses with the sort of ever-decreasing number now using websites online and over 14% in the last piece of research, not even knowing what a domain name was?
1: Yeah, thanks. Interesting question. So... So it's interesting what we do with the, the business service. As I say, part of the challenge we have is is it's mandatory. So you know the options uh, in terms of being able to complete that um, the surveys are are a bit less, a bit more restrictive in, in that sense. But what we do as part of our research, as part of the, the the program work that we do, we actually engage with the business community. So we go out to businesses of all shapes and sizes um, and ask them what, what suits them best. Now in all cases. Um, you know, the, the general feedback has been to move to digital. In some cases, particularly where there are smaller surveys, that may not be appropriate, and we may still stay um, and offer that paper um, that paper option. And I think currently we still do that. If a business can't do it digitally, we still offer a paper solution, so that is a possibility. Um, but again, we're trying to engage with the businesses to find out what works best for them. Um, and what I would say, particularly for the smaller businesses, in terms of how they are sampled. Um, they only get rotated in every so often. So if you're a small business, you might expect to fill in one survey, which may be an annual um, or a, maybe a quarterly survey. So over, over four periods, obviously. Um, but you do that generally for a 12-month period, and then you're rotated out. So you you wouldn't then get another questionnaire in theory for potentially another two years. So we do try and limit the burden on smaller businesses and sole practitioners, etc., to make sure that it's proportionate to to you know what they uh, what they can provide and the demand on their time and resources.
0: Brilliant, thank you. I'm going to go online for two quick questions, both from Anonymous. Good evening to you. Um, The practical one is, what do you classify as business? Are NHS trusts and universities included? Uh, And then the second question is, will all of this work make it possible to collect data on occupations, a notoriously difficult variable to get a hold of elsewhere?
1: So, we do collect data from government departments. Generally speaking, that there are some surveys that go out to other government departments, but we do have a, a different feed-in um, for, for government. So that comes in from a different system um, where we get data um, directly from, from government themselves. We do, there are some surveys that we go to government departments from like research and design, for example. Um, there are some surveys that go out to those businesses. Um, but generally speaking, as well, we get a lot of other data from, um, uh, for directly from other government feeds, as you might, as you'd hope, as I suspect, is that other governments share data um when they collect it for government purposes. In terms of occupation, we have other surveys I think which which try and classify sort of occupation, I think, via some of the the um, uh, employment type surveys that we do I think on 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 the Business data that we collect, it's generally classified by the, the main uh, majority of the income, I think, from the from the business. So and depending on what you do, you will fall into an additional classification code, and that determines where you fit within the, the, the sector and that ec- economic theme effectively. Um, longer term. The SBR, that, that business register I talked about, you know, if we, because we'll have the ability to link other variables onto it, there is potential to link other things into businesses um, to be able to, to, you know, to do a much more um, sort of bespoke analysis, I guess, um, by theme, but linking those variables into a business itself. So, from other sources, we could add variables into it to try and make that analysis better.
0: Great, thank you. I'll come to the room for the next question. Hands up if you'd like to ask the next question. Uh, right down at the front.
3: Hi, Adam Locker, National Highways. Um, what role do you see in the future for administrative data in surveys? Could it replace sections? Could it enrich your survey? Or could it be used to corroborate the findings you get from your survey or a mixture of those things? How do you see that working out in the future?
1: Yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a great question, actually. I, all three would be the the obvious answer. And I think what I should say is surveys, surveys are... Um, They are extremely important they allow us to ask really specific questions and the way economic stats are compiled you know we work to comparative data so we use something called the european system of accounts for our definitions which it makes it quite precise however i think our first protocol would always now be admin data if there's an admin source that exists that we could use to remove the burden of businesses then we would do that absolutely and i think that's part of what we do i would argue that surveys you know where admin data is not available we we go to service but if it is available then we are you know we are trying to use as much of that as we can there are challenges as i'm sure we're all aware in terms of access in terms of um the specificness of the definition um but absolutely where it's available we we would use admin first
0: Great. Thank you. I'm going to go online for the next question. Uh, this is from Anonymous. No idea if it's the same one or a different one. What were the biggest challenges in achieving data sharing across other government departments? And are there any lessons that you gained in the process?
1: Yeah, I think I'm sure this is the same for, for everybody that has just tried to, to, to share data and receive data. It's It's the will is always there. I always find that the government departments are really willing to, to share its legislation and the rules that exist behind how the data is being collected or what it's used or was able to be used for are always the challenges. So the legal barriers I find are the biggest challenge. What we've done and I think what other government departments do, it's all about collaboration. I think we you know we work incredibly hard to build relationships to to understand that public good aspect of what we do. You know, ONs exists to deliver public good. You um, know, alongside the, the civil service, it's about trying to to really provide that narrative that explains why that data is so, is so useful, why it's needed, the benefits of doing that. But it's that collaboration and, and often takes, you know, takes a long time. Um, you, know, you have to really sort of work through the process. Um, it's not easy. Um, I wish it was easier. Um, but absolutely, it's, it's, it's a huge challenge. But this, I often find it's the legal, the legal barriers that are the biggest hurdle to overcome. I think the will is generally always there.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Um, I'll come back into the room for the next question. Or I will take another one online. Um, there is another question from, oh, yeah, from Anonymous. Uh, <laughs> to what extent do you treat surveys and admin data as interchangeable from a consent perspective?
1: Again, surveys, particularly on the Business side, um, they are mandatory and they're, they're business data. So, you know, that data is something we collect sort of under legal framework and it's collected under quite strict. Um, um, Assurances that we know we protect the data; it's it's never shared uh, beyond its 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 collection remit. It's it's always kept, um, you know, with limited access, you know, under all the security you expect. So from that perspective, on the business side, there's a there's a huge amount of reassurance that goes around uh, what that data does. Um, And similarly for admin, I think admin sources can only be shared. It goes back to the previous question, really. They can only be shared where it's been collected or proved in a way that allows us to use it. So and again, I think you know all our statistics. You know, we do things like disclosure. Check. So we don't publish um, data that can reveal individual businesses or individuals themselves um, on a the social side. But on a business perspective, if things um, don't pass disclosure, it doesn't get published. You know, we, we, we are extremely careful to make sure that when data is shared, it's kept private. Um, you know, it's aggregated to the level that is good for public use, but would never disclose or or, or um, harm the, the provider behind that, that data source.
0: Excellent, thank you. Well, Phil, we'll be taking you up on that very kind offer to come and speak to us again uh, once some of the work has developed. But for now, thank you for getting us off to a great start this evening. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: Uh, and apologies to those of you online whose questions I didn't get to. Lots of really great questions coming in. Uh, we move now to our second speaker this evening, and that's Gordon.
4: Come on. Oh, my bloody time to start right um, uh, I'm Gordon Guthrie I'm a couple of things I'm, I'm two legal things I do not represent the views of the Scottish Government I'm an independent researcher and the party that Ash Reagan has joined is called Alba, not Alba um, it's a got a lot of people being caught by that never mind um, <coughs> this parliaments are the mother of computer systems you pass law you get a digital system uh, it's a you know, in most cases, probably 30 or 40% of the legislation that goes through now leads to changes to digital systems. And they're not designed to do that. We know that in Scotland because the Parliament is 25 years old. Uh, I was a campaigner for it and friends of mine wrote the parliamentary procedures, so I asked them. So things tend not to do what they're not designed to do. And since the Parliament has been set up, we've seen really, really radical changes in, in the digital spectrum. And it's best really exemplified by considering the sort of computers that we use to bring national insurance systems in, in the 1980s. Uh, that's one of them. People on the audio, I'm holding a hearing aid up. Um, the, the quantity of computation that we now have compared to the 1980s would make your hair grow. So things have radically and dramatically changed. And we're we used to thinking of digital as a world of capex and big programs. It's now substantially a world of OPEX. It's your salaries that make it happen. Um, and when we look at digital systems, there's an old saying that uh, data ages like wine and code ages like fish. We need to start thinking of our digital systems and our data as assets and liabilities. And when we look at parliamentary processes, we have two routes through the parliament. We have a standard bill route that goes through um, and we have a a separate track for money. We treat assets and liabilities different in parliamentary terms. And what we need to start doing, if we're looking at data and things, we need to start thinking of these in the context of um, long running, long valuable assets that we hold. To give you an example, my brother helped computerize GP's practices in the early 1980s, late 1980s. And they basically took a form and they turned that form into a data table and then they made a GUI. The form was called a Lloyd George form because Lloyd George had personally designed it in 1911. So we have data structures. People in here who are working on data can not unreasonably expect some of their decisions to be part of the core infrastructure of the state in 100 years' time. And at the moment, there is no, almost no parliamentary oversight of thought of that. So we do need to think carefully about what we want, you know, what we mean about data. And we also need to think really carefully, when we talk about data, there's many different things. Um, There is a clear difference between uh, statistical data and operational data. What are we collecting? These are radically different things. Operational data is usually only meaningful in the context of the circumstance. So if you'd look at um, waiting lists in a district, from an operational perspective, that only makes sense in, the, in a web of other data pieces. And we often misuse these things, things like life expectancy, which is a genuine statistic, is not the same as a waiting list. And that makes it. But in terms of the operational data, we basically have, we require four different data strategies in the state. Data can either be congested or uncongested. So person data would be an example. Edinburgh City Council had at least 80 databases with person data in it. Um, a very congested data element, whereas, say, a database of marine invertebrates might only exist once if it exists in the Ministry of Fish. The second element, which it can be done, which gives us the four, the other two, is partitioned or not partitioned. Is it in many places? Is the data in local authorities where the same data element is dispersed? And we need to actually stop and think about, when we look at these things, do we have four separate data strategies as, 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 a, as a sort of statewide? And... Stata is critical because it is the bottom teeth of the zip. In order to to do a data system implementing code will will have about nine things required to do it. Rules around definition, creation, read, update, delete, but also rule of law things like audit, how is it audited, recourse, how do I get on or off it? What's the appeal process? Um, As well as, um, is it partitioned? And what is its timiousness? And if if we can align those nine, those things will be defined either in primary legislation, secondary legislation, at the whim of a developer and or in case law, but they're all gonna be defined. And at the moment, they're just just a mess. Um, So if we have those things congruent, we can then merge multiple data sets. That's the next step in the zip. And if we can merge data sets, then we can merge um, the processes that operate operate on data. And that's what reduces the burden on businesses and citizens. And if we can merge the processes, we can then merge the organisations. And that's what reduces the tax burden by reducing costs. So if we're looking strategically at managing data operations around the zip, where we go through a consolidation and law reform process, what we're actually saying is our data experts are actually initiating machinery of government changes, not the prime minister. And that's potentially um, quite a big change. So there's be constitutional implications of thinking in those terms of, of data analysis. Um, and when we look at how Parliament works, we have a repeating pattern of timescales. So you're a technical person, right? In the next five years, our goals are to do this. We have a two-year strategy. We have a tactical work over one or two quarters. We have day-to-day work and the service designers have that and the organisation designers have that and the data people have that. If we apply that model to the Parliament in Scotland, we have election every five years, fixed-term Parliament. It takes two years to get a bill through Parliament, um, we get 22 a year, we have a very hard constraint. Uh, it takes one or two quarters to get secondary legislation through, we have a hard constraint at Scottish Parliament, that's 400. And we have lots of day-to-day operations. So we have these two engines, a legislative engine um, and a digital engine, and the last 25 years has seen the digital engine speeding up, speeding up, speeding up, speeding up. And we're getting, we need to build a gearbox that rotates between them. And the model that we traditionally use for this is simply to say, secondary powers, delegate, da 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 um, and let the techies go away, go away run and do stuff. That's entirely unacceptable. We have to figure out if we're going to change these things as we do this harmonisation. We have to think about how, how this is going to work constitutionally. All good revolutions have a slogan. Um, explicitly constitutionality, and simplicity. Everything rhymes. The core thing here that we're talking about is... is um, is using separation of powers and uh, and parliamentary oversight. On the the, uh, power to change things, the model is the Law Commission. Law Commission Scotland has its own route into the parliament and can propose laws. So what would a digital reform commission do that might have powers to produce machinery of government changes or other changes and have power to change legislation to fix some of these problems. Um, And on the other side, we have a couple of bodies. We have Audit Scotland, and we have Social Security Commission, whose job is to take the massive decisions that are happening that Parliament can't handle because of its, its throughput capacity and then filtering, triaging them and then bringing the problem ones to the Parliament. So what would a digital audit unit look like that was going around checking oversight? And we have to change um, the relationship, you know, Francis Maud brings in the senior responsible officer now controls, um, now controls time, uh, the timing of public launches, so we have to think of what roles do you have or not have. Um, the system has to be explicit so, ever, so people can improve it, it needs to be constitutional because it's not at the moment, and it needs to be simple. The process that I'm following to write this report cannot be correct because I'm one person doing some interviews, therefore it must be wrong. So we need to start with a simpler system, use explicit to correct it and sketch out how we're going. And I'm 11 seconds over for which I'm very sorry. <laughs>
0: You were bang on time, oh, moment, well. so <laughs> well done. And um, again, for those of you watching us online, uh, please do submit your questions via Slido. Lots of you have been already. It's bit.ly slash Slido DB 47, if you're not already there. Let's start in the room. Plenty to get stuck into. Who wants to go first?
2: Thanks, Paul Atherdin- Paul Atherton again. Um, do you see the rate of technology exponentially increasing and by definition that you're always going to be in a race against the speed of technology against the speed by which you can
4: legislate um no all 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 technology all technology problems at scale are human problems and we're at the human problem limit i don't think that i think the speed of technology is i think also I think that period has overcome. there's a lot of evidence that the rate of innovation is actually dropped um, and to be honest what we're mostly doing is squandering hey I programmed on punch cards against nothing so I think I think you're all wasteful I think you should all go home and stop using computers because you're not using them properly but um but uh, I think it's I think the rate of human problems is getting higher and the level of, what we're seeing now is complexity Complexity used to be an edge condition of the state, um, and the model I use is the atomic energy. Atomic energy comes in, and what happens is that we we um, we encapsulate it. We have the, the first bill in 1946, says the Ministry of Supply owns everything that glows in the dark. The, the next one in the 50s, the Atomic Energy Authority, puts a set of experts and wraps that, not only experts in atomic energy, but also... Accountants and trade unionists, part of the Atomic Energy Authority. And then in the 1960s, we put the, the power, separation of powers with the inspectorate, nuclear inspectorate. What we now have with digital is every single department now is complex. And so we have to take that m- model of encapsulating complexity and think of it all the way through our departments. And that changes the relationship of civil service, the state. But I don't think the technology itself is. Technology doesn't matter a damn, to be honest. It's just. I'm not a code monkey, but I don't care. <laughs> nice and provocative. Um,
0: (laughs) uh, Mary Susan Barry uh, says not a question but a comment very thought provoking presentation so thank you. Um, Patrick C online asks are there any emerging differences in the data digital landscape in Scotland versus the rest of
4: the UK? Um, There will be I mean the the census have been separate since 1841. Um, I'm I'm not a huge expert in data I'm covering a whole range of stuff here and I'm not to trade, I'm not a civil servant, I've been working in Silicon Valley stuff, um, one side I'm Silicon Valley, the other side I've been a parliamentary candidate a couple of times, so I'm really not the person who can answer that, but I suspect there will be, um, there ought to be data divergences if you have operational control of your systems, and so I generally would like to see more data divergence across the whole of the British state, <laughs> unless we currently, if you'd come last night to my talk last night, you'd have heard us talking about Dominic Cummings recreating Sovnarkom and Gozplan with the centrally planned economy, which everyone at Westminster seems to be obsessed with. Um, We seem to be recapitulating 1960s Kosygin Soviet Union. But um, I can start a fight with anyone if you're interested. (laughs) Uh,
0: Let's come back to the room for the next question. I've got one in the corner there. Just wait for the
4: mic. Hi there, uh, Will Langdale, um, Business and Trade Department of Business and Trade. Um, I wondered if um, what you're sort of proposing here, if you've seen it tried in other uh, places in the world, or in perhaps like uh, multinational corporations, or uh, you know, have you seen it practically used anywhere? Um, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll just run through the methodology I'm using. I, I know, I know, I know the parliament was designed to do it. I know that I have conversations with my friends in tech are very different. When I talk to my friends who are government ministers in Scotland or, or parliamentarians, the process I'm following is uh, is practitioner-led. So I effectively started with people who write manifestos and then and work in think tanks, then people who built the program for government, then people who wrote bills, then people who bill packs, and I'm going up to the parliament, to start talking to the through the parliamentary process, and I'm talking to practitioners. Um, what I've done, I did a big exercise on data, and Gavin took part of that. We We mapped all the tasks against those four timescales. I'm going to be doing that for engineers, for service designers. Um, And then once we've done that, the expectation is the majority of these tasks, the correct parliament, the correct oversight model is I come to work and I tell my boss what I'm doing. I mean, that's a very general, that's the default thing. And where there are relationships with with, um, interactions with the law, the question then comes, how do we do this? Um, Most of the thinking is based upon to production system, treat manifesto to in-service systems as a car assembly line, identify people who can stop the line when there's defects. So um, violently anti-innovation, if it's an if it's probably wrong, though I have found one thing, using rules as code to generate property-based tests, but that's because I do property-based tests. Um, so anti-innovation, seeking precedent, hate the word transformation, prefer to use the word adjustment, it's continuous improvement on what we have. Parliament isn't designed to create computer systems, but it does. People in good faith make it work. If we make it explicit, civil servants and people who do it can improve it. That's generally the mantra. So um, and I will be wrong and I cannot be right. So by definition, <laughs> I will be wrong.
0: Thanks, um, I'll go online for the next one. Uh, Anonymous asks, if you have the power to change one aspect of the system, what would it be and
4: why? Well, the first change I think we ought to do, uh, and you sent, me the, you sent me the English equivalent to the Scottish uh, Legislation and Parliamentary Unit Bill Process. Uh, I haven't yet read the Welsh one, I've looked that one up. We have a 400-page manual of how to take bills through Parliament and the Westminster one is slightly better. It says, once the bill's gone through, you should test your forms with citizens. That's this entire statement about digital. I don't think the Scottish one even does that. I would say in that bill pack, Have you talked to the techies? Have you talked to the data people? Are you reusing data systems? Which systems do you intend to use? Do you know which computer systems this law is gonna change? And I would put that into that process um, in all the... Well, once I've read the Welsh one, I'll make the same recommendation. And once I've read the non Welsh one, I'll make the same recommendation, but I haven't read them yet, because 500 bloody pages.
0: Uh, Your last two answers flow beautifully into the next question, which is many politicians don't come from data savvy backgrounds. To what extent is this a problem or blocker to improve the constitutionality of digital and data in public services?
4: Very few politicians come from accountancy backgrounds, but they expect accountancy best practices to be used There are, there are essentially two, there are two industries that have stop the line powers in general um, there's a couple more now but essentially lawyers can say this is not legal um, and historically 35 percent of parliamentarians are lawyers across all jurisdictions that's kind of true. Um, And the other one is accountants. You would not think of uh, doing something without having proper accountancy in place. So I don't think you need to be an expert to do this. I think we as professionals, wearing my professional hat, need to constitute ourselves as professions and operate independently. And We need to develop a relationship with Parliament. Parliamentarians make decisions between choices, and it's really about the framing of those choices um, uh, and... We've seen it in Scotland, interestingly, Gordon, Donald Dewar took, uh, when Donald Dewar moved from Secretary of State of Scotland to the First Minister, there were no machinery government changes in Scotland. What did change was the context in which all decisions were made. And this is really about changing the context in which politicians make decisions because they don't, they do not, politicians cannot make decisions at ad novo, they have to make from choices. And I don't believe we're, we are presenting them with the right decisions at the right time at the moment.
0: Brilliant. Final quick question, someone in the room. Go on, quick, hand up. There. Hi, oh, yeah, yeah, Solomon Fitzpatrick from WPI Strategy. It, this is a, a quick, quick one which I kind of presume you're gonna say the answer to. We've heard a lot about AI. Do you think that the basics are, of digital and tech are
1: there to even think about the potential of AI?
4: AI is super useful in narrow, well-defined rules. If AI at the moment in politics is, is, is taken over from Agile, if we rub it on it, will all work marvellously. Um, at the moment, and we were talking in the green room, if only they'd called it applied statistics, we'd all be happier. Um, I think, uh, Yeah, um, no, I think, I think people are getting, I think people are getting very excited about AI and I think it's a load of barlocks. Um, <laughs> You've set us up perfectly for the next speaker. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, you you <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
0: Which brings us perfectly to Sean.
5: Hello. Um, so when I thought about what I was going to present tonight, I took a bit of an odd approach. I handed the presentation over to ChatGPT. Um, It wrote the presentation for me. I'm going to give you a narrative that tells us about the department's progress through developing a governance framework for using AI and LLM's perfect segue. This is the slide that ChatGPT didn't write. The only other... No, there are a couple at the end. The main body is all ChatGPT. And what I want to say is... What's really important is to think about how we've been using AI. So it's not new in government. We've been using it for a number of years. It's becoming more and more trendy. Um, We use it in my department to look at business intelligence. We use it in our products and services. We also use it um, in some tools to make sure that our cybersecurity works and, and a whole load of other bits and pieces. There are issues with it. We know that there are issues with it. And if you think about the results that we saw in the pandemic where they used an algorithm to calculate the results for GCSE and A-levels, you will no, no doubt see the difference between the results for state schools and those that were produced for um, paid-for education. So this is the ChatGPT part of my talk. Um, this is what ChatGPT thinks the title should be. Um, I wanted to speak for five minutes, I told it. I told it what the presentation was about. It came back with these slides. The narrative is all mine, nothing to do with ChatGPT. Um, Primarily, it gives you plausible responses. You'll see it's not a bad presentation, even if I do say so myself, Um, but that doesn't mean it's right. And indeed, when you look at the presentation, I'll highlight some of the gaps. Um, Of course, this is a really specific thing that I've asked it. The thing that it knows best after all it is one of these tools and um, what i want you to do though is think about the things that are kind of a bit odd or the things that are maybe not quite right here um, the agenda i'm not going to read it out for you this is what the llm thinks i should cover i do plan to cover most of it quite quickly um but like i say we have identified some gaps um, before i go any further i'd like to give full credit to my team here i did some of the um, thinking about this work, but they've done all of the work. Um, so those people are Sarah Livermore, and Anne, um, Tony Coyne, Anthony Coin, who's online tonight, and also the Alan Turing in- Institute, and Mike Kettle in particular. Sorry, Mike Kettle in particular. So um, the next slide is suggesting an intro- introduction to LLMs. So these are changing the way that we use data, the way that the internet works. Um, Their use isn't ubiquitous. You can choose how to use these tools or how not to use them, actually, as is the case in the Department for Business and Trade. That's why we've got this governance framework. So at the start, when the hype started, we thought, well, actually, is there a problem with this? What would the problems be and how would we manage that into the future? There was so much use and so much hype that we thought, well, the only way to think about this safely is to have some really good governance so that at least we know what we're doing. The value in this work ultimately comes from the data. So this gets really complicated when you think of models with hugely complex data systems behind them. In fact, all of the data on the internet. Um, The governance that we've created isn't around using the technology. That goes through a separate governance process. This is about the use case that you're choosing to apply that technology on. And it is a continuous process. So I'm not suggesting that you take the technology and you get the use case approved and you hand it over and you have nothing more to do until the work is done. The whole point is it's an ongoing and an agile process. and um, It's not you can take it and do whatever you want. It's an approach to learning, learning about the results. You get learning about where the errors are, how to correct for those errors, and how to reconcile a hugely diverse range of perspectives. Um, So this is the interesting bit. What does ChatGPT think are the best practices for the LLM governance? So for data security... LNM isn't actually doing any of this. The use is completely uncontrolled, unmonitored, and you're actually handing over the responsibility for the decision-making to something that isn't human. Is that right? Well, in a government context, how can it be right? There's got to be a human in that loop. Um, so one of the things that we learned through going through this project um, was that the LLM is going to predict what you're going to type in to ask it about. That's hugely problematic because it's recording all of that type ahead. So it might be, if you start what, what's the next word going to be? It's predicting that next word and recording that as something that you're searching for. That clearly isn't right. So there's a whole load of complexity about what it's learning from just what you're putting in that search bar. Um, Then you start thinking about, well, how do you mitigate that? If you keep records, how thorough do they need to be do they need to be the things that the machine thought you might type or the things that actually you did type and how is that then used in future searches with that um, tool i mean ethical use in practice is really really hard addressing bias in a data set where you don't know the scope of that data set is massive Um, and how is all of the underlying data actually used to inform what results actually come out of this Um, it's massively complex and it requires um, a whole group of people, essentially an agile team of sorts, to make sure that the way that the tools are being used are giving you the outcomes that you need. The challenges and considerations. So many people don't really care about explainability, but in a government context, explainability is really important. You can get some insight out, but you actually have to explain why that is important. And describing the process is really hard. And we've tested the approach a few times now. And the legal frameworks just don't keep pace with the advances. We heard in the first presentation some issues about the legal frameworks. Well, actually, they're even harder to manage when they're not keeping pace with the technology. The technology may become mainstream, but how long will it take for the legal frameworks to catch up with that? I mean, the LLM governance that has come up here all sounds really sensible. It's completely new and there's a lot of learning to do. That's why the Agile approach is really important. We've just launched it in our department. We haven't actually used the technology in advance of having the governance framework. That's been really challenging. I've had so many conversations about why not and why the the governance needs to come first. The framework that we've developed is quite extensive. It contains over 70 questions that you need to answer to even get to the stage where the assessment of whether we should do this happens. So far, we've had a couple of teams go through that process. They've all managed to get through the governance in a day. I'm astounded by the fact that they could do that because it is quite a lot to ask people. But it does mean that if there's a will, there's a way. And it also means that... um, we do have people who are willing to go through this to do tests in a safe way that should give us learning that is really useful. Um, so these are the things that the LLM thinks might solve some of the problems. I, I think I have a bit of a problem with some of these. I mean, how can you do bias detection on a data set that you don't even know the scope of? The role of human judgment is going to remain incredibly important and the limitations in the capabilities aren't appreciated. Um, I'm going to skip over employee chaining because I'm running a bit slow. Um, This was the conclusions, but the thing I do want to spend a few seconds on is these are the things that were important in our framework that weren't included. So cyber, what is the cyber risk with this and how do we mitigate that? The legal basis, the scraping of... vast quantities of data isn't all really, really sound, of sound legal basis, so how do you know what's sound and what's not? And do LLMs actually overtake data sharing? Because if all of the information is in the LLM, then actually it might mitigate the need for those data sharing agreements altogether. Um, i got to end with a thank you slide.
6: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much. We've got plenty of questions coming in online already, but it's bit.ly slash slido db47 if you're not already there. Let's start in the room, though. Who wants to ask the first question?
3: <laughs> oh, we've got to, we've got two down here. You sure? Uh, hi, Adam Locker, National Highways. Uh, you You may have already answered my question here, but I was particularly interested when you said you ask people to present their use cases. How are you assuring consistency of presentation of use cases so that people, there's nowhere for people to hide the detail, which may be important yep. and they can willingly hide what yep. could be evil?
5: So there's a lot of questions, 70 plus questions. And it's, it's agile. So it's gonna, I think the number of questions will increase before it decreases. Hopefully in the long term, we'll be able to consolidate. But the the consistency of the answers across those 70 questions would be really hard if you didn't actually know what the use case was. So the the pilots that we've already run through this, and they're a very small number, um, those are the questions we then go back with. So this is resource intensive from the kind of operation of the governance perspective, as well as from the perspective of filling in the questions in the first place. And, yeah, that's, that's the real challenge. So you need people to lead the governance process who really know what they're talking about. Otherwise, you, you wouldn't be able to pick up those inconsistencies across the blocks of answers. But there is, there is rep, repetition and duplication at the moment. That means that we can pick out the things you're describing. If you lose all of that, you might also lose some of the power of the governance framework.
0: Thanks. I'm going to go online for the next one. This is from Andrew P. Good evening to you. From your departmental perspective, what can the centre of government do to help facilitate your work?
5: Yes, so they are already doing quite a lot. There's already some governance information online. There's quite a lot of discussion within the forums that we all attend in government. And there's loads of use cases. A list of those use cases would be really useful for me. Um, And we're collaborating with other departments on, we've got a really small number of use cases Um, I think two or three at the moment. Um, Those aren't solely within DBT either. So, yeah, there's a lot going on. I I think um, being across the breadth of it is really hard because there's so much going on.
0: And if anyone from the centre of government would like to come and talk about all of those use cases, we'd love to have you. (laughs) We'd love to see that list. Uh, Let's come back to the room for the next question.
6: Very quiet tonight. Uh, I've got one down here. Thank you. Um, based on your presentation um, what would you uh, kind of say in the future how this whole process would actually enable um, DBT yeah. um, to have a good governance process yeah. that will enable it to actually promote the Britain going global in terms of pushing the British post-brexit agenda and using the same data how do you actually build the trust in other countries that you're trying to reach out to
5: so so governance in this space is going to be critical going forward and um, things if we don't have good governance things will go wrong things probably will go wrong anyway right but by the approach that we've taken means that we know exactly what we're doing for each of those use cases so it's all documented. If there are problems, we can go back and we can work out where the problems were. Were they with specific aspects of the governance? Were they with the approach that we were taking? We've got enough evidence to be able to use that evidence to inform the future use that we're making in government. Um, The way that these are being used in the in business and in other sectors is hard to find out. And we're not hearing about use cases that are solving some of the big problems. But if we can share the governance work that we've done and other people can pick the bits of it that might be useful for them, we would hope that it will support more people to be able to safely experiment. And I think at the moment we're still at that experimental phase. Um, If it works, then as we firm up how we work and what we're doing, we will continue to share that in the hope that that might also support um, in the future business growth. But I think we're a long way from that yet.
0: Thanks, I'm going to go online for the next one, it will shock you to hear this is a question from anonymous, uh, given some of the data security, monitoring, ethical and audit issues you mentioned, to what extent should government use open source LLMs or develop their own rather than proprietary systems like ChatGPT?
5: Yeah, so I took out some of the presentation because it was already too long, there was another bit about the way these systems work, actually replicating all of the data in proprietary systems that are owned by other countries and then you don't know what that data is being used for. Um, Obviously, for business and trade, that's quite a big issue. So, yeah, there's a massive problem there. The problem also is, though, that if you build it yourself, it takes a massive amount of compute power. It's much slower. It hasn't had the amount of development, and so you don't get such a slick experience. So I think there's pros and cons. Um, Yeah, it depends what you're using it for. I think it's context-specific for all of this.
0: Thanks, don't make me regret it. Let's come back into the room. We've got a question over there. Hi, um, it's from HMRC. Um, My question is about whether you think that decision makers in government are genuinely interested in using those
5: tools or do you think that they are developing frameworks for governance just for the sake of keeping up with the technology? No, so definitely I would say isn't in the interest of keeping up with the technology. If I could have a pound for every time I had to persuade somebody not to use the tools because there isn't a governance framework, I probably wouldn't need to work. The demand is absolutely massive. And we had to do this work or we had to let people use the tools. Um, and I, think, I think that we made the right decision for our department. Um, and now that people can use the tools, the fact that they are quite burdensome, and yet as soon as we asked teams if they wanted to trial things, it took a day to go through the governance process because they put people on it to, to work through so that they could go ahead. It's, it tells you that actually this isn't about technology finding the solution. There are enough people in government wanting to use this stuff. It still might not work, though, right? So, yeah, I don't think it's the answer to everything. I think control testing is where we need to be.
0: Great. Any more questions in the room? I've got one down
6: here.
4: Uh, Jim from the UK Health Security Agency. Um, if we are not able to build our own, then how we will ever use it with classified information to different levels?
5: Yeah, yeah. that's a really good question. And I don't think I'm saying we won't ever be able to build our own. I just wonder if the way that we use data is mature enough at the moment, or if the use cases that we should be testing are really narrow. I and mean, the ones that we're testing in the department, they are very narrow. And they aren't, we haven't approved a mainstream LLM for, for routine use where people can just chuck through use cases. At the moment, it's really specific and, and they're really well defined. And I guess that's the point, right? If you're using it on a really well defined use case, then you'll work out whether it is worth the investment.
0: And a final, very quick question from Anonymous. Uh, so, one sentence on what is the biggest risk to the public around the expansion of
6: AI?
5: <laughs> 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 oh, so I'm definitely going to say I'm not qualified to answer that question.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, Shant, thank you very much thank you. indeed. now our final speaker joining us for his second Databytes appearance, Databytes 6, way back in October 2019, probably one of the best and most influential events that we've done. Uh, Delighted to have back Adam.
3: Imagine my delight when Gavin said long-standing Data Bytes enthusiasts who will recognize this presentation as basically the presentation I gave last time. (laughs) Here are eight more things I've learned about doing data in government. Some of them are just provocations. Don't worry, I'm not being entirely serious. Okay, opening shot, full broadside. We need to more actively challenge the notion that just making data available will cause magic to happen. If you build it, they will come. Sure, but now you're haunted by a disgraced baseball team and I don't think that's what you were shooting for when you chopped down all that corn. You need to start with the outcomes you want because you can at least hypothesize some indicators that will show if they're working or not. I highly, highly recommend the work of Dr. Ryan Dunn and his team at DWP Digital. If you want to understand how to measure data success, a service organization I think it's pretty much the gold standard yeah that's right I said it I know what you're thinking but Adam what about free text yeah but what about words but Adam what about pictures what about pixels the structures there it's just not always immediately apparent For me, the people that really get data, they really get data modelling. It's the core skill. They seek out and they poke and prod at the structure that's there, but perhaps not apparent. Now, in a beautiful segue here, we may now have to accept that to help us see that structure in ever more complex data, we might need to use AI or machine learning. Trust the data guy to come up with the most boring implementation for AI you can think of. Data quality is absolute nonsense, and I'm sick of hearing about it. Please allow me to illustrate this with an example. Somewhat ironically, it revolves around some unstructured data.
4: Now, that this just in: Police officers in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, were asking people to be on the lookout for a man who robbed a store, and I think, yeah, I think we do, we do have his description. Can we take that? Let's take his description. <laughs>
3: Not exactly a Rembrandt, is it? By every objective measure, this is a bad drawing. Low quality data. So what happens with this low quality data?
4: Oh, and now I'm getting word that police actually caught this guy. (laughs) Thanks to the sketch, no doubt. So here's a picture of the real guy (laughs) next to the sketch that led to his arrest. Where's the pointy chin? It's uncanny, Lisa. (laughs) Uh, The the guy uh, on the left, is now charged with two counts of theft Is being held in the Lancaster jail. Got him.
3: <laughs> the purpose of the sketch wasn't to hang it in the National Gallery. It wasn't to be evidence in court. All it was there for was just to track down someone so that this guy could be in court at all. It did the job for which it was intended. It was fit for purpose. You only know if your data's fit for purpose if you're continually trying to understand the purposes that it could and should be used for. Now, for anyone that's worked with me, this is a shock. You would be shooketh. How did I get here? When you build data pipelines as projects and not products, you're making one of two mistakes. You're either assuming user needs with a long list of requirements and invariably missing the mark. We need circle, we need triangle, we need hexagon, or you're building pipelines one at a time and coming back around the loop again and again. So then you end up duplicating effort or not meeting user needs. And quite frankly, data engineering is now so expensive, you cannot afford to do this. We should only engineer that which is certain. Find out what people need and build that. If you don't know what people need, start with the most well understood of user needs, which is your own data teams. The people that act here, they need well modeled, somewhat conformed and tidy data that's well documented. If that's all we do, that's fine. At least when you come back around to do these bits, you're coming from a higher baseline and not duplicating work. I get it, I, I really get it. <laughs> The argument that it's a people problem was a reaction to being patronised by tech professionals for decades. And I'm not joking about that. But the reality is, we work in socio-technical environments. So here's the deal. I don't need non-tech folk to have an opinion on databases, data models or engineering. But I do need you to understand the tech we use at a conceptual level... And I am more than happy to draw you a diagram to help you understand. That is my whole job. Boxes and lines. But for the fellow tech people in the room, I want you to really understand this. Not only do you need to be okay with drawing that diagram. If someone asks you to draw one, you should be absolutely flattered. And the reason you should be absolutely flattered is because this person is being intellectually vulnerable with you. And that is a responsibility for which you must account for your actions. Be nice to people who are asking for your help. Okay, here we are at the data stoicism section. (laughs) Let's go through some of the worries I have heard and that drive me crackers. We've got to make it reusable. All right, Greg, maybe let's just make a thing that works first, shall we, before we worry about reusing it. (laughs) What about scale? Uh, Just start with the cloud. And then let someone else worry about the scale for you, at least in the short term. You need to identify the points at which you may have grown beyond the scale, so you can act. You can't be passive about it. You can't go, oh, whoops, our service is no longer working. But you can at least say, if these things are true, we may have breached the scale problem. Vendor lock-in. Look, let's be honest, most of the time, vendor lock-in is a choice. If it wasn't, then most analysts wouldn't still be using Excel and you can look at almost any product in most technology stacks and find another one that is objectively better or cheaper. But we almost never switch because of inertia. The trick with vendor lock-in is again to describe the conditions we need to be true for the change to outweigh the inertia. If you don't have a vision, I was recently chatting with a developer friend of mine who's just started a new job, I'm picking up PHP he said. Ooh, how quaint. I quit. <laughs> what is this, 2006? But then he completely uh, proceeded to completely dismantle my argument. His boss is clear on the context in which they work. I know PHP, I know I can get people who know PHP, and I know that PHP is ab- absolutely adequate for the scale at which we're working. So navigating the um, vendor marketplace for this guy is a doddle. Because in order to get him off PHP, someone has to first convince him that they're better rather than just selling something. I'm afraid I'm gonna run over by a few seconds, Gavin, but this was the end of my last presentation. This is the end of this presentation. This is going to be the end of every presentation I give between now and when I die. We're dealing here with nation scale change and slowly. Don't confuse failures of management with a failure of approach. It took Edison 10,000 attempts to perfect the light bulb, so we should be able to do a list of things eventually. Icarus was a terrible pilot, but we didn't stop trying to fly. Maybe you can make the data fly. Maybe one of you here will finally make machine-readable data contracts a thing. Maybe one of you here will finally sort out lists of things. Who knows, but you have to keep getting up every day and keep trying because this stuff is both incredibly boring and incredibly exciting. You're here on a Wednesday night to talk about data. Come on, give yourself some credit. We might actually be able to make some nation scale change here. Oh no, my presentation. (laughs) It's failed. Neil, help me. Did I go back anyway that's ruined my big finish but <laughs> you're all here and I appreciate it maybe give yourselves a little more credit for the things that we're trying to do thank you
0: Thank you, Adam. Incredibly boring and incredibly exciting. There's the data tagline sources. <laughs> um, for those of you online, it's bit.ly slash Slido db 47. Let's come to the room for the first question. Okay, I'll go to the back row first and I'll come to you
5: next. Uh, hi, Kathleen Caper from our Central Digital and Data Office. Oh, Adam, so young, so cynical. Um, I am one of those people who needs people to show me their boxes and lines. Um, There are lots and lots of people across government who draw boxes and lines and do cool stuff, um, lots of which I don't really understand. How do we join that up in such a way that you guys are learning from each other that we're not repeating the same lines and boxes, inventing the same lines and boxes in different parts of government over and over again?
3: Um, one of the things that I nearly put in here was somewhat aligned to what Gordon said. We shouldn't be doing innovation. Innovation is nonsense. We should be innovative in how we assemble commodity products. All of this stuff you can just buy like Lego bricks. I want to see the innovation from the people that design the services and I will come up with the Lego bricks that they should be using to build those services. Now, sometimes they may wanna have a look inside the injection molding factory and that's fine. But for the most part, if we can get to a point where we've built rapport and trust with people, they'll start to trust the Lego bricks that we provide them and they'll start to build some cool things like a rocket or a flying badger. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Let's come down to the front
0: for the next question. Hi, Paul Atherton.
2: Um, I'm interested in where the government and data is seeing open source going, because there seems to be a rise again in sort of an interest in open source. Munich's gone back to it. Um, And I'm just wondering what what the feeling is over here.
3: So the way I see open source is that nearly every vendor is selling you a flavour of an open source product. So if you're diligent about which one you're buying, then you should, in theory be promoting long-term interoperability and be able to stop that vendor lock-in thing, right? Um, What you have to be careful of is, you know, underneath most products these days is something from the Apache Foundation, right? But when the bolt-ons start getting really thick, you have to be really mindful about um, what that will mean in the long-term and identify those conditions for change again. I much prefer when people really choose a product and go for it because they understand, well, this fits our organisational context and the outcomes that we want to achieve. As long as they write down a note to themselves in the future, if we breach these, this, this or this, then we need to look at moving away from this product because it's becoming unhealthy. But I do think that there's generally a fear of picking something, going with it and getting a capability and a cadence and a community of practice within your organisation around it, but the problem is then you never really do anything. So I, I much prefer people to have a... You know, if you want to do your stuff in PHP, go for it. Own it. But um, make your choice and go for it
0: thanks. I'm going to go online for the next question, and um, <clears throat> Neil, do signal to me if we're able to give Adam his big finish at the end as well. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm sure we can make it happen. Um, the next question is from uh, previous presenter, Miranda Sharp. Evening to you, Miranda. Do you have a view on what the
3: most useful Lego brick is? Probably the 4x2 one. <laughs> right I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> The most useful Lego brick is the one that gets you to the software as a service product that just does the job you need. I think you want to be, this is back to buy commodity products so that you can move off them. Um, again, start with user needs, it's just that some of your users may be um, technicians or engineers or... Uh, and try and find something that's built on open source on the top of it, because you will mitigate some of your risk of non-interoperability further down the line. Again, you're, you, you wanna be thinking in 10 or 15 years, what's the guy, or the girl, or the third person that's gonna replace me gonna be left with and have I left it in a reasonably tidy state and documented how I got to this position? So actually, I think my favorite leg brick is the architectural decision record, because it says, this is what we chose, why we chose it, the context we chose it in, and the consequences that we acknowledge around making that choice. So uh, it's notepad.
0: Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, next question from the room. Uh, we've got down at the front.
6: Sorry, um, if I'm just looking at your presentation, got seen as well again, um, are you afraid that I'm sure you're looking very young, you're still very young. And when I look around the room, I see young people here. Are you afraid that in 10 years time, you may be losing a job with the way we're going? Machine learning, AI, GPT, with the Prime Minister arguing about the safety guarantee of machine doing the jobs in the next 10, 15 years. I'm over 50 and we've lived through the computer age. Are, we, are you sure you still have hope you'll still have a job in 10 years time? Are the young people here still have hope they may still have a job to do in 10, 15 years time? Are we still going to have an NHS where when I'm 70 years old, I'm still trusting what the NHS tells me about my health or a machine? I don't know what you think now.
3: So my respectful answer to that question is, you're sat in a room of people who have dedicated their Wednesday night to coming to talk about data and how we may use it for the betterment of our public good. So, yeah, I definitely have hope. You're sat in a room full of it. I think that... I mean, first of all, in 10 years' time, if I'm lucky, I will be retired. (laughs) If, If all goes to plan, I will just knock it on the head. So I think that... I was at a conference with some uh, colleagues a while back and some peers, and one of the conversations was, ah, the kids these days don't wanna work. And every generation says that about the kids these days. But actually, the kids these days, they don't drink, they don't smoke, they go to the gym, they work hard, they don't have a hope in hell of buying a house, and yet they're still at it. So if that doesn't give you hope for the future, then I don't know what will. We taught those next generation, from the experiences that we had, we've put those things into them. So I'm gonna have a little faith that they will teach the generation after that and the generation after that, even if they are robots, that <laughs> there is a future. <laughs> I, for one, think if we do this right, not working is the outcome. What, why do you wanna work? I'd rather play with Lego or video games <laughs> or go fishing or go kayaking. Like. That could be the world that we imagine, and everyone just imagines the world where the Terminators roam in the streets. The truth might be somewhere in the middle, but...
0: Final quick question, anyone in the room? Hi there, hello. Hi, it's Sanjay Abhishev um, from Blue Swallow Group, we're a marketing agency. Can I just challenge you on the quality data? Absolutely. Um, At least on the example that you've provided. So obviously that picture, which seemed very simple, have, has led to an individual being apprehended. However, um, and the justification you've made is that it's quality because it has led to the arrest, but we, can we not fall into the trap of taking a solution which is lower quality that we could have had because it has led to the conversion that we uh, we uh, demanded and not strive for better quali- better quality data and settle for that which has delivered once but may not necessarily
3: deliver another time, thank you. So the point I'm really trying to drive out with the quality thing is that all data exists for one original purpose. Many, many times, and usually it will do that purpose really well, right? So if we have a system at National Highways that counts all the traffic cones we have, then we know how many traffic cones we have. It's when you try and expand the usage of that data beyond the parameters for which it was originally designed that people will often say, well, this data is not good quality because it doesn't meet their needs. The difference these days is that you cannot have data that meets everybody's needs. You can only document the original use case. And then if you've got a strong enough product mentality in your organization, the people that run the cones database, for example, will talk to the people that want to use that data and maybe make iterative improvements. But we need to move the conversation away from, this is rubbish, to, this doesn't meet my purposes, but can we work together to help it meet our purposes, or should we find another way? You can't make all data fit all purposes. That's, I think that's the trap people fall into.
0: Cohn's database sounds like a modern version of the Cone's hotline all of a sudden, <laughs> doesn't it? Um, Neil, are we able to try the big finish?
3: Try yeah, No, 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 I feel, I feel oh, like the moment... The, mo- <laughs> the, the, the moment is definitely still here, let, 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 let's go for it. No. No,
6: no,
3: no. no I, think, uh, I think it's my presentation, Neil. It did this the other day. I may have pressed the button wrong somewhere. I have no idea how long that one took to make. Give yourselves a cheer! Oh no! That didn't work. Oh! That was the worst five pounds I ever spent. If that, if that isn't a metaphor for data in government, I don't know what it is. Thank you.
0: Adam, thank you for the rhetorical and presentation-based fireworks, even if we didn't quite get the... I mean, the parish notices are gonna be so underwhelming after that. The video will be on the IFG website within the next 24 hours. You can already watch it back as live on Slido. Our next public event is next Tuesday afternoon. It's the general election. What change do we need with Lords Willits and Mandelson? Times Radio's Kate McCann and Kelly Beaver from Ipsos. Also got events coming up on the autumn statement, local leadership on net zero, and a new series on public service productivity called Productivity Pitches. Where could they possibly have got the idea for an event series that goes on over multiple months from? Um, There's various bits of AI-related content suddenly appearing on the IFG website, by which I mean content about AI, not generated by it, uh, looking no. at how the government is approaching it uh, and what's been happening with the AI Summit. Data Bytes will return on Wednesday the 6th of December. Please do sponsor a future one. We would love to take your money. Uh, please do come and speak. We would love to hear what you're up to. And all that remains for me to say are two very big thank yous, first of all to you in the audience, some brilliant questions here in the room and online tonight. And please do join me in a huge round of applause for our brilliant speakers this evening. Thank you very very much <laughs>